following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, good morning. Turn to Psalm 103. Psalm 103, that's page number 502. If you're going to use one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you, I will add my happy Easter to the morning. Easter is the time where we see bunnies and eggs and ties at Cornerstone. So it's always exciting around here. Not making fun. A lot of sharp looking men in the room today. A lot of ties. Uh, anyway, I'll leave it at that. All right. I purposely decided to not say some of my normal Easter things today. So you're welcome. Uh, we're going to be reading Psalm 103 in its entirety. We're not going to look at all of Psalm 103 this morning, but I do want to read it all. And I want you to listen very carefully as I'm reading. Uh, follow along in your Bibles after these initial slides. I won't put any up behind me for the rest of the sermon, so keep your Bibles open because I want you going back to it while we're going through the text. But let's listen to what David writes here in this beautiful, beautiful psalm. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place, is, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. Father, I am reminded this morning of the same truth we looked at last Sunday, that unless you preach the sermon, I preach in vain, unless you listen, for everyone sitting in the seats right now to the sermon, they listen in vain. We are reminded this morning we are completely dependent on you for absolutely everything, both everything in this life and everything in the life to come. And so I pray this morning as we spend some time here in Psalm 103 that 
you will remind us of the truth of the gospel, of the beauty of the all-sufficient work of Jesus. Jesus, help us to remember this morning to, to find our comfort in the fact that you have paid for all of our sin. It is forever wiped out in you. I pray that this will be encouraging and convicting to us. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Well, last Sunday, I uh, took us to one of my favorite psalms, which I freely admit it doesn't mean much because I have a lot of favorite psalms, but the one in particular that we went to last Sunday was Psalm 127. And I just was trying to share a few reflections with you about things I have been learning over the past few years now related to fear and anxiety, worry, insecurity, that sort of thing. But since today is Easter, I did not feel like I could move on to the next topic that I wanted to cover with you, partially because, A, I knew the format of our service today would be a little different, some extra songs and readings, those kinds of things. But then also, B, I knew your expectation for the message would be a little different, and I wanted to honor that. So I decided that we would take a few minutes together this morning to look at a corollary idea to what we looked at last Sunday, and that is coming from another one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 103. Now, last week, I dealt with the topic of fear at what I called the horizontal level. You remember me saying that? It kinda, that was my way of trying to describe fears that have to do with this earthly life, okay? Fears about the future, fears about health, fears about relationships or family or kids or money or whatever the, the subject might be, anything at this level. And rather than trying to delve into each particular expression of fear that we might face, I thought that it would be helpful if I tried to diagnose fear as a whole and get right down to the core of what is at the heart of our fears if we can kind of peel back all the layers of the onion and see what's going on in our own hearts. And in my personal opinion, which again, I said last week, you're free to disagree with, but just give me an alternative diagnosis if you're going to do it. In my personal opinion, I think the ultimate root cause of fear in our lives is the fact that we are not in control of anything. Okay, if you remember that, if you were here last Sunday, we're not in control. And deep down in our hearts, we know that. We know that we are not in control. And believe me, deep down in our hearts, we hate that truth. We don't like it. We want to be in control. That's the, the fog we want to live in. Most of the time, I would say that the majority of us live as if it's not really true that we're not in control. We think we are, so we live like we're in control. And, or at the very least, it's not at the forefront of our minds on a daily, moment-by-moment -moment basis. And therefore, we go through life not fearing a lot of things. But every now and then, God brings, and I think this is a mercy on his part, he brings something into our life, kind of right in our face that just shows us in a very clear and obvious way, no, you're not, you're not in control. You're not in control of this. You're really not in control of anything. And when we run into those moments, it seems to me that the common expression of our hearts, the common response of our hearts is fear. And that's why I took us to Psalm 127, because in that psalm, we're reminded of two very wonderful truths related to this particular point. First, we are reminded of the fact that we are completely dependent on God for absolutely everything in life, okay? So unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord watches the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So it doesn't matter how skilled you are, how experienced, how diligent. It doesn't matter how mundane the, uh, the, the task or the thing in life may be. If God is not in that, if he's not the one ultimately accomplishing that through you, your work is in vain. We are dependent on him for absolutely everything. And second, we were reminded that he gives his children rest. 
in the midst of all of that, okay, that truth that, that, you know, we're not in control. You might be tempted to become fearful, but that's not the point of that truth. The point is to remind you that if because you're not in control, because it's God who's in control, you can rest. He doesn't give us the bread of anxious toil, right? You talked about that in verse 2 of Psalm 127. He gives his beloved sleep. And so we rest, not in the outcome, not in the circumstances, not in the answer to prayer of the thing that maybe we were hoping for. The rest we find in those moments is in God himself that he is the strong tower. He is the safety. He is our provider. He is the one who watches over us. It's it's him. He's the one that we are ultimately finding our rest in. Now, as I said, all of that was my attempt to both diagnose and respond to fear at the horizontal level. But what about fear at the vertical level? I mentioned that last week, but we didn't develop that at all. Well, what what about... um, Let's begin by just being honest and simply acknowledging the fact that I think all of us in here have some amount of fear at that level. And if you're confused with what I'm referring to here, I'm referring to fear of God, not in the positive way that the writer of Proverbs talks about that leads to wisdom. I'm talking about fear of judgment, fear of punishment, maybe even fear of abandonment and rejection by God. Unless you get confused this morning in any of the things that I'm going to say, I want to make it very clear that I'm not primarily talking to unbelievers this morning. I'm primarily addressing believers today. If you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, well then, um, I have bad news for you. You do have reason to fear because you are under God's judgment. You are under God's punishment. You are rejected by him, but I'm not speaking primarily to you today. I'm speaking primarily to believers, to those who would affirm that they have placed their faith genuinely in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And to that group, I would ask the question, who in this room has not at some point in their life after their salvation struggled in fear, wondering if God was going to punish them, judge them, reject them, abandon them, that, that kind of thing. I'd say we all have, all of us. Now, some of us more than others, um, I know, for a fact, there are people in this room who just regularly struggle with this very issue. That the, the whole idea of assurance of salvation, that they can be confident in the finished work of Christ on their behalf, is something that is a constant, everyday battle for them. And so they're constantly fearing that they're going to be rejected by God, that God's going to finally give up on them or whatever the case may be. And so for some people, those fears continually nip at the heels of their heart. For everyone else, you know, maybe this isn't something you struggle with on a continual basis, but it is something you struggle with. Occasionally, maybe during times of sin or times of discouragement, or maybe just, you know, when times it seems like God is silent in a situation in life and you just don't understand and you sit there and wonder, is God Is he judging me? Is he punishing me? Has he finally given up on me and said, no more, I'm sick of them. I'm sick of their constant failure. I'm just, I'm done with them forever. We've all felt like that before. Well, for those who struggle continually and for those who just struggle occasionally, and I think that should cover everyone in the room, I give to you what has encouraged my own heart for many years and times like that, and that is Psalm 103. As you look at verse 1 now, you notice that David is speaking to his own heart. He's speaking to himself. He says, bless the Lord. And that's a command, right? Bless the Lord. But who is the command directed to? Well, it's directed to, oh, my soul. 
So, so David here is speaking to himself. He's telling his very own soul to bless the Lord. In fact, if you just quickly scan verses one and two, you notice that he gives four commands to himself. Bless the Lord, bless his holy name, bless the Lord a second time, forget not all his benefits. If you drop down to verses 20 to 22, you see that he eventually expands these commands out just a little bit. He, he commands the angels and the hosts of the Lord and creation itself. And then one final time, he commands his own, own soul. But recognize here at the outset of Psalm 103 that this psalm is primarily a self-directed psalm. And that makes it a little bit unusual because throughout the whole thing, he's primarily talking to himself. He, it's as if he's reminding himself of, himself of certain truths that, that he needs to rehearse to, to be uh, uh, jostled in his own brain, in his own heart. And so what is it exactly that he wants his soul to remember here? Well, he begins in verses three through five by listing out, almost in bullet form, five benefits of the Lord that his soul needs to be reminded of. First, that he forgives all our iniquities. Second, that he heals all our diseases. Third, that he redeems our life from the pit. Fourth, that he crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. And then fifth, and finally, that he satisfies us with good so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. Five things that he wants to remember his soul. Hey, soul, don't forget. Your five things, don't forget the five things, soul, because you need to have these constantly on your mind and in your heart. But of these five benefits, David spends the majority of the psalm talking about only two of them. In verse 8, he begins by saying, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, he doesn't present that statement in a context. He simply just kind of throws it out there as a general truth about God. And that is, in fact, what it is, okay? This is a general truth about God. Remember the time in Exodus chapter 34, Moses wanted to see God. He wanted to interact with God. And so God gives him this opportunity. And so he takes him up the mountain. He puts him in the cleft of the rock, kind of a little crack, an opening in the rock. And then God descends upon the mountain in a cloud and passes before him. You remember this scene? Well, well, as that's unfolding, right before God passes, he begins to announce himself. And you kind of have to think back, like, I don't know, a few hundred years, maybe like when a king would walk into a castle and there would be a herald to be like, the king, the king has arrived. And he would kind of announce the king's presence back in the castle. If you can kind of think of that scene then this will make sense to you because God himself is going to do that very thing for himself. So I'm going to start reading here in verse 5, Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Okay, so here's God. He is declaring, sort of announcing himself in this moment where he's about to present himself to Moses, and his opening line is, 
the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If you look back at verse eight, you'll see that's almost word for word. How David describes God here. So he's just giving us a general truth about who our God is. And having now given us this general truth about who God is, he begins to apply that truth to the context of how God uh, deals with us. Verse 9, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. What does that mean? It simply means that God does not give us what we deserve. That's it. God doesn't give us what we deserve because if God dealt with us according to our sins and if he repaid us according to our iniquities, we'd all be in hell like right now, okay? We wouldn't have even made it to the, to the building this morning. We'd have already been there if we got exactly what we deserve. I've shared this before, you know, but over the years in my own home, you know, this is one of the things I've been trying to, to teach our children. I've not done it consistently, but you know how it is. Parents, your kids will have some moment of like, that's not fair. I always try to respond with, well, you don't want fair, <laughs> Believe me, you don't want fair. You think you want fair in this life, but understand that you don't want fair in that life. Because if God treated me fairly this way, I'd be doomed. I'd be doomed. I really don't want fair. I don't. But he, he doesn't treat us fairly. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Why? Well, David gives us two reasons. First, because he loves us. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. This is very picturesque language here. I mean, think about how high are the heavens above the earth. You go out at night and look up, you see the stars millions of miles away, and there's more past them. It's unending. It's unmeasurable. That's the point. Well, you know, whatever that measure is, that's the measure of God's great love for us. Uh, he, he uses two words here, great and steadfast. Great, indicating its size, its unmeasurableness, and steadfast, indicating its duration, its never-ending. Never-ending. So why does God not deal with us according to our sins? Why does he show us mercy? Well, it's because he has chosen to love us with an unmeasurable, never-ending love. That is the first reason. Okay, so what's the second? Second, because he's forgiven us, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And again, just notice that picturesque language because how far is the east from the west? And now you're all thinking from one scarred hand to another. I know that. Uh, just get that out of the way. F forget the song. Stick with the imagery just for a moment and recognize that again, the point is it's unending. It's unending. I look as far as I can to the east, past the horizon and out into space and there's no end. And I look as far as I can to the, to the west, past the horizon and out into space. It it never ends. There's no measure to it. Well, if there's no measuring the distance between the east and the west, then there is also no measuring the distance of how far God has removed our sins from us. No measuring it. Completely gone. And that is actually why I love that song by Casting Crowns, because they tie a direct connection between this statement here in Psalm 103 and the cross and the gospel, right? I mean, because 
you know just how far the east is from the west. It's from one scarred hand to another. It's just simply reminding us that it is on the cross that the unmeasurable, never-ending love of God leads to unmeasurable forgiveness. It's on perfect display, and it is perfectly accomplished there on the cross. And so when you read verses 11 and 12, Christian, you should be thinking of Jesus. Like you should just write that in the margin, Jesus, like right by verses 11 and 12. This is, I'm never going to read these verses without thinking about what Jesus did for me ever again. And as I say that, and I'll throw out an extra little freebie comment, recognize that his death for us was not simply to pay for our sins up to the moment when we accepted him, okay, we put our faith in him. He didn't, and this is going to blow a couple of your minds, get ready, okay. Jesus didn't die for your sins. He died for your sin. Hmm. He didn't die for your sins. He died for your Meaning, he died for the whole package. The whole kit and caboodle. The full indictment with every crime listed on it. The entire thing is gone. Removed as far as the east is from the West, from you. We'll come back to that more in just a moment. And then he ends with this little section with some of the most tender and most precious words in all of Scripture. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. It's been a few years since creation, but he hasn't forgotten, you know? He remembers He remembers our frailty. He remembers our weakness. He knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust and he has chosen to be a merciful, compassionate, loving father to us anyway. So without any fear of repeating myself from many, many times of saying this in the past, I give you J.I. Packer's quote one more time. He knew the very worst about us and loved us still. What a great quote. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust and was a compassionate father to us anyway. You know, this is why, for those of you in here who have accepted Jesus as Savior, this is why you should never fear at the vertical level. Okay, again, if you're not a believer, you should fear. But if you are a believer, you should not fear at the vertical level. Why? Because because what punishment then is left for us? What judgment then is left for us? Hasn't Jesus taken it all? Isn't that what we see in the gospel? I mean, didn't God pour out all of his wrath and anger and judgment on his own son so that we could be forgiven? Isn't that what he did? As the old hymn says, Jesus paid it all. All, every bit of it. He paid it all so that there's nothing more left. No scraps, no little components or areas that it wasn't paid for. He paid it all, and now it is done. Because of Jesus, our sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. God no longer looks at them. The entire record of our sin has been thrown away forever. And I'm talking again about that, that list, okay? So, so listen now to Paul. 
Here, I'm coming back to that idea. Now, listen now to Paul, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Well, how exactly did you do that? By canceling the record of debt. Can't wait. Canceling the what? The, the record of debt. The, the whole indictment. The entire kit and caboodle. The whole package. Not just the individual parts. I mean the whole thing. He took the entire list and he threw it away. It's gone. The whole thing is gone. Well, how did you cancel that record of debt? He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's on the cross that the indictment is destroyed. It's on the cross that the indictment is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And so... Will God now reject someone whose indictment he has removed from them? Will he abandon them at this point? No, no. Again, listen to Paul. Familiar words, Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who could be against us? Who? Who? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also now with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The indictment's gone. It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the next time your heart, believer, begins to fear, fear at the vertical level, fear that God is somehow now angry with you and is punishing you and is you know, going to reject you, abandon you, give up on you, then I would, I would just plead with you to do what David did here. Talk to yourself, okay? Command your own heart. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then go through those benefits. Go through these verses we've looked at this morning and remind your frail, weak, often wandering heart of dust that your trust is in Jesus' blood alone. And that is enough. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we, we come because we, we are weak. We are made of dust and we are so frail and so prone to wander. It is not surprising that we fear at times, but Lord, you could not have been clearer. You are the merciful, gracious God who has not dealt with us according to what we deserve. As, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your steadfast love for us. 
as far as the east is from the west. That is how far you have removed our sins from us. That record of debt, the entire indictment is gone. And it's gone forever in Jesus because you poured out all of the wrath and punishment on him. And so we thank you this morning, Lord, because we're reminded of the truth of the gospel and what it means for us. And I pray that as times come and we fear, we fear your wrath, we fear punishment, as we'll sing in a moment, we fear your banishment, that you will remind us here of these truths, that we will speak these truths to our own heart and cling to them, to cling to you. Lord, if there's anyone in here who is not a believer, as I said, they have every reason to fear. They do not have the hope that we sing of. But I pray that through this weak message this morning, they will hear the truth of the gospel that you will prick their conscience to want that same assurance that we have. Lord, our hope is in you. Jesus, you have paid it all. Everything to you we owe. May we be reminded of that, encouraged by that, and convicted by that this morning, we ask in your precious name. Amen.